We are in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, we're going to, I'll explain in a minute, but we're going to skip some verses and start at verse 8. And uh, this is one of those passages that if you didn't preach through the books and weren't committed to preaching all the passages, you probably wouldn't get to this one. Um, so this is one of the hard passages of the Bible, but because we are committed to going all the way through and not skipping uh, uh, the hard passages, uh, we're going to deal with it. The, uh, I have skipped verses 1 through 7 because I preached that section last year. Um, I'll mention that in a minute. But let's start. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And uh, as always, let's listen carefully. Paul is writing to Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. They continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe a little hard for some people to say that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us uh, again this morning to Paul's first letter to Timothy to learn more about the gospel, about roles of men and women, about the dangers of reversing those roles, the need to keep faith in Christ the main thing in each of our lives. Lord, thank you that your word makes us uncomfortable. If your word always said what our preconceived notions of the way things are ought to be, then we would be suspicious of it. Because you so often come in and show us that the way we think is not the way we ought to think. And so as we come today and sit under the authoritative teaching of your word, we recognize that these are not the words of men, but the very word of God. And so, Lord, teach us by that word. Use it to build our faith and learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So, before I jump in, a couple of books uh, this is a little bit longer sermon than normal because the uh, topic is important. And I have this book, Women in the Church, uh, by two actually uh, Baptist scholars. Um, this entire book is written on this text, so those verses. So there is a ton there. Um, I don't actually recommend. It's a great book, but unless you really want to go super deep, um, The book I recommend for most people as a starting point is Men and Women in the Church by Kevin DeYoung, PCA pastor in Charlotte and uh, teaches at RTS in Charlotte, and that is a great introduction and fairly easy uh, read. So I have those. I'll have them down here if you want to look at them. Uh, Question, have you ever had to fix something that you had no idea how to fix? Maybe it was a leaking pipe under the kitchen sink. 
Maybe it was that annoying blinking light on your car's dashboard. Perhaps it was that mysterious gremlin that came out of nowhere to eat the Word document you just spent two hours writing. And the worst part is that after you uh, get the tool or look up the do-it-yourself video on YouTube or run that fix-your-software-utility app that everyone told you you had to have, and after you spend another hour going through the motions of getting everything set just right, and you've put the tools away and finished the video and closed the app, then it leaks, breaks, lights up, and crashes again. The world is broken. And it's not just your pipes, apps, or lights. But in deep and painful ways, things are not as they should be. Now, some of that comes from sin. We see that with horror uh, yet again when the tanks roll or marriages fail or anger explodes. However, not all brokenness is sin. Some of it just comes from plain old suffering, such as we see when cancer calls, hearts give out, or anxiety overwhelms. All of which shows that life is full of weakness and pain and confounding circumstances, and it covers the full spectrum from leaking pipes to heartbreaking illness. And while the suffering and weakness is not necessarily sinful, it does have its roots in the first sin of Adam, what we call original sin, commonly known as the fall. This is the point where sin entered the world and all people for all time through the sin of our federal head, Adam. Now, we find that in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and then they hide from God, who, of course, finds them and questions them. And he starts with Adam in Genesis 3.12. And he questions Adam, and we read there, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So three things happen. There's deception, followed by sin, followed by a reversal of roles, and finished off with the divine curses giving the consequences of sin. So first God, then he spoke to the serpent um, and cursed it, and also gave us the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. But then he directs his attention to the woman in verse 16. And we read, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So, pain in childbirth. Some of you know more about this than I do. But I know if you just read People magazine... All you will see are pictures of celebrities leaving the hospitals with their babies, looking radiant with beaming smiles. It's amazing what Photoshop can do. My experience with maternity wards is of exhausted, ragged, sweating, confused, and messy people. And that's just the dads. Seriously, childbirth is painful. Even with modern medicine and highly trained medical personnel, it's still painful. And it still leads to new parents immediately experiencing physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion. This is the weakness of the world after it's fallen from what the Lord made it to be. But it's not the only weakness. Because next we see the Lord speaks to the man, Genesis 3.17. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, we see that Eve was created out of Adam, and her curse affects the birth of more people. Adam is made from the ground, and his curse affects the cultivation of that same ground and producing food. Both curses are related to how God created the man and the woman. Both curses are the result of sin. And both are part of the grand plan of God, moving from creation to fall to redemption to glorification. And you don't get to take any of those pieces out without the whole thing falling apart. Which made it quite interesting this week, as I read about a woman named Shannon Harris. Shannon is the ex-wife of celebrity deconstructor Josh Harris, who formerly pastored in Gaithersburg, Maryland. He left the church, he left his wife, he left the faith, and he opened an online self-help business, joining the growing number of, quote, faith deconstruction coaches, who are happy to help you leave the faith too. Yes, they do exist. No, they're not helpful. And now Shannon has left too. And of course, she's written a book about it. And in the book, she blames the church for all of her issues. She did an interview with the Religion News Service. She gave this answer to the following question. Now, we just read Genesis 3. Here's her answer. The question was, what kind of harmful theology did you encounter at the church? And Shannon answered by saying, my church and their brand of churches interpreted the creation story very literally. God created Adam, then Eve. Women are second. God created Eve from Adam's rib, so she's not her own person. She's been made from a piece of Adam. God gives Eve the job of Adam's helper. She doesn't even have her own purpose. And then Eve is curious. She listens to the serpent, and she trusts herself, and she becomes wise, and that scene is bad. And she gets punished for her wisdom. Now, we, meaning virtually all elders in the PCA, and anyone else who subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith, would disagree with nearly everything she said. We would probably agree with the God created Adam and then Eve. After that, not so much. And that's because she has twisted the word of God to take something bad, the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, and try to turn it into something good. And she says the church literally for all time has gotten it wrong, but now she's gotten it right. Red flags ought to be going off. This is a big problem since the Bible warns us, Isaiah 5. By the way, we're going through Isaiah in Sunday school. Wade opened that up for us this morning. Encourage you to be there. Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 
now. I've said all that with an emphasis on Genesis 3 and how some in our culture treat creation and the fall because it's at the root of today's passage in 1 Timothy 2. This is one of several passages that addresses gender roles in the church. Now, as I said, I'm skipping the first seven verses. They're all about prayer because I preached a whole sermon on that text last summer in August of 22. You can look that up online. And plus, I realized this was going to be like a two-hour sermon, so something had to go. So, moving on to the controversial stuff. And there are a few areas in the church today that are more controversial than role relationships between men and women. Lots of churches, particularly in the charismatic world or the liberal mainline denominations, have very different views of role relationships in terms of leading, teaching, and preaching in the church. So, why do we do things like we do when they do things like they do? Why is it that the PCA does things this way when other churches are doing it that way? Why is it that conservative evangelical Christians all over the world have a different view of male and female roles and responsibilities in the life of the church when there are other churches who do it differently? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses all of that. And this is one of those passages where he addresses very distinctive roles and responsibilities for men and women in the church. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in verses 8 through 10 because they're less controversial, uh, even though they're important. They're important because they reveal an important principle, (coughs) excuse me, which is not controversial. And that principle is simply what we see in here on the outside reveals what's on the inside. So verses 8 through 10, the outside reveals the inside. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So first, we see with the men there's a hindrance to prayer. And that hindrances were prone to anger and quarreling. It's hard to pray when you're mad. It's hard to pray when you're lazy. It's hard to pray when there's a lack of holiness in your life. It's hard to pray when bitterness and division exist in the church. And he's implying that the men are responsible. Now it becomes even more interesting when you realize the first seven verses, those ones we skipped over, are all about prayer. I encourage you to go back and uh, read or listen to that sermon But very quickly, they give us several reasons to pray. Uh, First, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, Uh, that people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and because Christ is both our mediator and ransom. So you can see that in the beginning of the chapter. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what they're mad about. He doesn't tell us what they're quarreling about. It could be the false teachers who've come to plague the church in Ephesus, where uh, Paul has sent Timothy, we don't know. But we do know that godly attitudes or ungodly attitudes and actions rob the church of the power that comes from corporate prayer. And we spent a lot of time on corporate prayer. Jonathan just let us through. We, we gave a good amount of time. That's not common. 
But if we're coming to that with anger and quarreling, we are actually robbing the church. So he leads with that. And then we see there's a hindrance to prayer for the women as well. Verse 9 starts with likewise, meaning that Paul hasn't changed subjects. Except this, it's a case more uh, about modesty, which in itself can be a touchy subject. But I don't think this is as much about what type of hairstyle or clothes or jewelry one might wear as it is about drawing attention to yourself with hair, clothes, and jewelry. Because if you're drawing attention to yourself, then you're drawing attention away from not just prayer, but who we're praying to. And if we're focused on the people around us, then we're not focused on Christ. So women are to dress respectably, modestly, with self-control, making it easier for everyone to focus on Christ uh, and put their attention there where it belongs. Now, has this ever been a problem in our church? Sure it has. I remember talking to one young woman whose jeans were split all the way up the side, both sides, with thin leather ties holding the sides together. Everyone noticed And after the service, I told her I didn't think those were really proper for church and asked her not to wear them again. And she didn't. Another time, we had a young woman sing on the music team for the first time. She wore a really short skirt. Now, that stage is about four feet higher from where I sit. And we used to remain seated during the offertory song. So afterwards, I mentioned that uh, she probably didn't want to be embarrassed by wearing that. And at first, she took offense and said something to the effect of, what? It's not like you can see my underwear. And I said, they're pink. Never had that problem again. True story. Now, guys don't get off the hook here either. We had a guy whose shirt was unbuttoned down to his navel. I spoke to him too. I probably wasn't as tactful. He discovered his shirt had buttons. Who knew? So it happens. And Paul says there's a principle at play here. Don't draw attention to yourself. Worship is to be focused on Christ, not us. Now, before we get into the next section, which is the really controversial stuff, need to give a little background because there's two predominant views within evangelicalism today on these issues. The debate in the church is between two different understandings of what the roles of men and women in the church should be. The long official names are egalitarian and complementarian. So those are the sort of the two camps. Egalitarian comes from the French word that means equal. And the egalitarian believes that equality between men and women means equality in roles. The idea that men were given primary responsibility of leadership and women were called as helpmates and to follow man's leadership was a result of the fall and the curse. And because the gospel has removed the curse of the fall and therefore restored men and women to an equality with no distinctions, there's now no difference between roles within the church or the home. Therefore, all ministry roles are open to women in the church. This is actually the more widely accepted position in the church in America today. Many churches today automatically identify both husband and wife 
as the pastors of the church? Well, the first problem is that the, the roles were established before the fall, but that doesn't fit the narrative. Now, for egalitarians who believe there's no distinction in roles and every role is available to any person, this passage becomes a very difficult passage to explain. I have a large stack of books on my desk with all of the various explanations. And uh, in the books that tackle this subject from an egalitarian perspective, the most common explanation is that Paul's addressing a local problem. There's a group of women teachers who are spreading false doctrine in Ephesus. Because of that, Paul does not permit them to teach. In other words, Paul's not giving a universal principle, but addressing a local cultural issue, false teachers who are women. However, there's some problems with that explanation. First, it's based on speculation. There is no clear evidence, either within the Bible or in any historical record, of women in Ephesus teaching false doctrine at the time. There are false teachers that Paul is dealing with, but all the false teachers he mentions are men. Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander. Second, if Paul were going to forbid all women to teach because some women were teaching false doctrine, then why wouldn't he forbid all men to teach because we know some of them were teaching false doctrine? Third, these explanations ignore his own reason for writing what he does. He doesn't say, oh, because so many women are teaching false doctrine, but he gives us his reasons in verses 13 and 14, which we'll get to. Now, the other side of the debate uh, that describes uh, men and women's roles in the church is complementarianism. And complementarianism, which is the view of our denomination, believes that God created men and women as equal in dignity, value, essence, and importance, but different in the distinct roles that men and women are designed and called to fulfill. We believe that God created inherent differences within the man and the woman, differences that go deeper than simply biological, differences that are at the core of a man's masculinity and a woman's femininity. And this is important because we're not to enter this argument with words like better or superior or inferior, just different. Are men stronger than women? Are women smarter than men? Are women more easily frightened than men? Well, the truth is, men are stronger in some ways, and women are stronger in other ways. Men are smarter in some ways, women in other ways. Women are more easily frightened in some circumstances, and men in other circumstances. John Piper writes, God intends for all the weaknesses that characteristically belong to man to call forth and highlight women's strengths. And God intends for all the weaknesses that characteristically belong to woman to call forth and highlight man's strengths. So we believe that God created men and women to complement each other, not duplicate each other. Now, having said all of that, this is still one of those passages that receives a lot of ridicule and is explained away by saying it only applied to the first century. But that's not the case. This is still God's word, and we're not given the option of ignoring it. And after I wrote this, I read an article last night that argued for women preaching, and in referring to this text said, 
Don't get stopped by one little verse. Essentially, ignore it. Well, the issue for us is not to read 21st century political correctness into a document that supersedes time and could care less about being politically correct, but is very concerned with truth and how it applies to our lives as individuals and as a church. And our understanding of these verses very much depends on our view of the Bible. So very quick, if we're going to get this passage right, then we have to get our view of the Bible right. Very quickly, we have strong doctrines about the Bible. First, we believe it's inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Second, we believe it's, if it's inspired, then it's inerrant in its original autographs, meaning that it is without error as it was originally written. We're not claiming that our translations are without error as they change over time because we're trying to keep up with languages that are constantly changing. Third, we believe that if it's inspired and inerrant, then it is the authority for our lives. The Westminster Confession tells us the scriptures are our only rule of faith and practice. So they're the authority for what we believe and how we live. Fourth, we believe it's sufficient for salvation. Everything you need to know to be saved can be found in the scripture. You don't need to go to any other source for salvation. And fifth, we believe in the clarity of scripture. Everyone can come to a saving knowledge of God through the scriptures, no matter your background or intelligence. Which is why Paul can say that God our Savior, 1 Timothy 2.4, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So that's our quick view of the Bible. We believe it to be inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear. Now with that understanding, we can now look at our controversial verses, verses 11 and 12, and the issue of authority. The issue of authority. Paul tells us that women are to receive instruction in a submissive manner in the public assembly, Starting at verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, this past summer, we taught these books, First and Second Timothy, to the teen Sunday school class. And uh, Tom and I both taught on these verses. And after we read those verses, I asked the class, so what do you think? And one of our young women immediately responded, Paul hates women. So I said, well, let's look at that. Now, Paul, throughout his ministry, was supported by significant women. Did they think that Paul hated them and yet still supported him? Paul often found the greatest reception for the gospel among godly women. We think of Lydia, a businesswoman that he met from Thyatira, who responded to the preaching of the gospel and became a core disciple in the new church he was starting. We look at the greetings of Paul at the end of his letters. They're filled with personal messages to women who are near and dear to him. We look at how Paul relates to Priscilla, the wife of Aquila. It seems he regards her with great respect. There is no concrete evidence for Paul hating women. But that's a common reaction to these verses. So how are we to understand them? 
simply that when the people of God are gathered for worship, Christian women are to be receptive and respectful as they sit under the authoritative teaching in the church. Now, one thing can be easily missed here as we read verse 11. Paul says there, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. In our culture, culture in which women have obtained unparalleled freedom, three words that jump out are quietly, all, and submissiveness. And those three words kind of grate against you. It seems like a put-down. But let's not miss something here. There is a hidden blessing in this verse. Paul says a woman must receive instruction. Forget the quietly and all submissiveness for a second. Paul's affirming what we see in Jesus' own ministry, that women are disciples. They are learners. That's revolutionary. Jesus' pattern was for women to be part of his disciples, but for men to do the teaching in that circle of discipleship. And Paul is saying, uh, that's how I want it in the church, just the way Jesus did it. Women are to be disciples. They're to be included. Let a woman learn is the main command in this passage. But she is to learn quietly. Now, what does that mean? A notable episode from the life of Paul helps us see what he means by quietly. On his last trip to Jerusalem, Paul was confronted by an angry mob in Acts 21. And we read there, at the very end of Acts 21, when he had given uh, him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So two different Greek words used to describe uh, this crowd. First there was a great hush, and then they became quiet. And that's the word that Paul uses here in 1 Timothy 2. Not the word for keeping silent, but the word for being respectful. And Paul is telling the women to give the authoritative teaching of God's word the same undivided attention that he himself received when he spoke in Jerusalem. Now, what about the all-submissiveness part? Submissiveness has kind of become a dirty word in our culture, especially for women. It goes against what Americans hold dear, freedom, power, and independence. And it can also be threatening because sometimes it's been used as an excuse for abuse. One woman writes in a book by Susan Hunch, quotes this woman anonymously, Every single one of my feminist friends was abused by a man who was supposed to be her protector, a father, an uncle, a husband. Is it any wonder these women don't trust men or they equate submission with codependence, downright mindlessness, or worse, masochism? The real and present danger of these sinful patterns means that Christians have a responsibility never, never to allow the idea of submission to become a justification for abuse. We also have a responsibility to understand submission in its true biblical sense, which includes resisting the urge to think of it always as something negative. Keep in mind that the men the women are called to submit to in the church are the men who meet the qualifications for elders, which we're going to talk about next week. Not domineering tyrants, but gentle servant leaders. 
Furthermore, whenever the idea of submission appears in the New Testament, and it does quite often, Hebrews 12, James 4, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5, it's always stated in positive terms. The Bible insists it's a good thing to submit to God-given authority. Not an easy thing, mind you, but a good thing nonetheless. Now, this is true even for those of us who are elders. I have to submit to the authority of the elders of the church. It's actually part of our ordination vows. And on those rare occasions when I disagree with the elders about something we're doing in the church, I have to defer to them. It's not an affront to my dignity to do so. It brings the peace of knowing that I've honored the Lord and allowed his work to continue unhindered. Now, what about verse 12? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, first, we'd be wise to remember that the same Apostle Paul gave the following instructions to women as well as men in Colossians 3 when he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So it's clear that at least certain kinds of teaching are to be carried out universally within the church. Prohibiting women from teaching in, uh, men in all circumstances not only goes against that biblical command, but against biblical example. We've already mentioned Priscilla, who with her husband invited Apollos into her home. Acts 18.26 explained to him the way of God more accurately. And she did this despite the fact that verse 24 tells us that Paulus was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures. There are times and places when it's necessary for Christian men to learn from Christian women. However, there is at least one place where it's not appropriate for women to teach. And that's in the authoritative proclamation of God's word in the context of public worship of the church. Here it's important to remember the context of Paul's letter and his instructions. Since the beginning of the chapter, he's been giving Timothy directions about corporate worship. And what he writes is not intended to govern men and women in any and all circumstances, but applies especially to when the church gathers for worship to hear the preaching of the word of God. But Paul doesn't just leave the matter there. Many wish he would. But he goes on to give the reason for authority, verses 13 and 14. And there he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So now Paul gives us a rationale. He gives us reasons why this should be. Why is it that Potomac Hills practices qualified male officers and qualified male pastors? Because of what Paul says here. First of all, Paul says that men are to be the teachers in the church because Adam was created first. Now that brings us back to where we began to the book of Genesis. Paul believes, in fact, both Paul and Jesus and everyone who addresses this issue appeals to the creation story. So Paul believes there's something of great significance that God was saying about the nature of the created order and the relationships between male and female in the fact that Adam was created first. Adam's priority in creation expresses a complementarian relationship between men and women. He's pointing to creation and he's saying that reveals something about the structure of the family and the church and that God wants that to be respected in every situation and in every culture. 
Secondly, he speaks in verse 14 about the deception of the woman in the fall. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Eve's deception cannot be attributed to intellectual weakness, but biblically to rebellion and her desire to be independent of God. And Paul's point is that Satan's temptation of Eve subverted male leadership where he deceived and tempted the woman even though Adam was present when the woman, uh, when the temptation occurred. Even though Eve was deceived first by the serpent, the primary responsibility for sin fell on Adam's shoulders. This is evident in Genesis 3, where the Lord speaks to Adam first about this sin. But it's also confirmed in Romans 5, where the sinfulness of the human race is traced to Adam and not Eve. Furthermore, Paul is not saying that women are more gullible uh, than men and that can't be trusted with leadership. Neither is Paul saying that women are incapable of being gifted Bible teachers. There are many women who are gifted teachers. He's simply saying that the exercise of teaching gifts are to be kept within certain parameters. Women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over men, which means that women are not to be elders. And as the following chapter will make clear again next week, that office is reserved for qualified men, not all men, but only those who meet certain qualifications, with the result that they're recognized as elders by the rest of the church. So what Paul is saying when you, is that what you see in the fall is a classic example of role reversal. I mean, let's look back to Genesis 3. Where is Adam when Eve was being tempted? He was right next to her. When she gives him the fruit, she doesn't have to go looking for him. She just turns and gives it to him. And Adam stood there the whole time and never said a word. He handed off his God-given authority. He never stepped in. He let his wife take charge when he should have. And Paul is saying this is what happens in the church when men fail to take responsibility. So verse 13 tells us what God has done, and verse 14 tells us what Satan has done. God establishes an order in creation, and Satan subverted that order. I want to look at a chart. Do we have that chart that we can put up? Okay, there it is. You can see in what happens there that there's an order to creation, and in the fall, that order is reversed. Paul appeals to the order in creation and the reversal of that order in the fall. And in doing so, he's showing that Adam's leadership is established in part on the basis that God created him first. That this ordering is part of his original design, which he deemed good. And Paul views it as a paradigm for both the church and the home. He intends a certain order in roles and relationships. And creation established the order of roles, and the fall tries to reverse it. You can take that slide down now. And so Paul says, because of the problems of role reversal, women are not to have this particular role of authoritative teaching in the life of the church. But then he goes on to say something positive. At least, I think he's trying to say something positive. And that's the result of authority, verse 15. And here we read, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
Could we fit more controversy into fewer verses? This is just one of those hard-to-understand verses, but with fear and trembling, I'm going to take a stab at it. There are so many different interpretations of this verse, it's not possible to cover them all. So I'm going to take on the major ones. First, some think this verse means that a woman must give birth to be saved. However, not all women give birth. Another uh, thought is that women who do give birth will make it safely through childbirth. So it's not talking about uh, uh, salvation or sanctification, just physical safety. The problem with that is throughout most of history, childbirth has been regarded as a matter of life and death, both for mother and child. And sadly, lots of women have died giving birth, including Rachel in Genesis 35. A third view is that this is a synecdoche, which is a figure of speech where the part stands for the whole. So this would mean that the woman would find her true sanctification not in the authoritative teaching office of the church, but in the domestic sphere. And there is some truth to this. Paul encourages the younger women in 1 Timothy 5 to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. We see similar instructions in Titus 2. So here, in this view, childbearing is shorthand for all of motherhood. Next, many think it refers specifically to Eve, and that childbearing refers specifically to the birth of Christ, who does bring salvation. I mean, if Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, then there'd be no salvation for anybody. And no greater honor has been given to women than the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. But this is a really long argument that depends on a unique understanding of Greek grammar and sentence structure. But it does get us most of the way there. There is another interpretation, however, in my opinion, has more merit. And that's simply, if we take the word saved, not to necessarily mean justification, because it doesn't always mean that in the New Testament. And we make more sense of it. I mean, most of us read saved or salvation, and we think about giving our lives to Christ and getting saved. But salvation has a much broader scope in the New Testament, covering the entire life of the Christian, not just a single definitive moment of faith and repentance. Philippians 2.12 commands us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not as a means of meriting favor with God, but as a striving for obedience. And this is the sense of salvation that Paul has in mind when he says that women will be saved through childbearing. In the end, he's continuing the connection back to Genesis 3 by letting us know that in salvation, Christ is reversing the curse. And as women embrace God's design, they will be working out their salvation, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, I think that's the best way that we can handle this is that the curse of childbearing, while it still happens and it's still painful, this side of heaven, just as we go through our life being sanctified, we're still saved. Paul says, if you continue in love and faithfulness and self-control. But that would be true for anybody. So that's an awful lot to say about a really difficult passage. But I don't want to end without mentioning the necessity of service. 
the necessity of service. You don't have to be a pastor for a long time to figure out without the women in the church serving in ministry, then the whole church would just shut down. And just because they can't be pastors doesn't mean they don't offer pastoral care. Every time a family in our church faces a crisis, it's the women who show up first. We have so many women, from the elders' wives to the diaconal assistants to those who lead the women's ministry and teach the women's Bible studies to those who teach in our children's ministry, not to mention the organization and the So, where would we be without the wisdom, abilities, and giftedness of women? The ministry of women is essential and indispensable to the life of the church in general and to the life of this church in particular. And that is not a new thing. All we have to do is look to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, and how he interacted with women in his own day. Jesus' approach to women was nothing less than revolutionary. Out of a cultural background that minimized the dignity of women and even depersonalized them at times, Jesus boldly affirmed their worth and he personally benefited from their ministry. He had the unusual practice of speaking freely to women and in public, John 4, John 8, Luke 7, he frequently ministered to the needs of hurting women, like Peter's mother-in-law in Mark 1, the woman who was bent over, uh, disabled for 18 years, Luke 13, bleeding woman in Matthew 9, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. He not only ministered to women, but he allowed women to minister to him. Jesus anoint, uh, women anointed Jesus, and he received uh, that from him, Matthew 26, Luke 7. Some women helped his ministry financially, Luke 8. Others offered hospitality, Luke 10, John 12. A number of women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Mary, and Martha are all mentioned by name in the Gospels indicating their important place in Jesus' ministry. Many women were among Jesus' band of disciples, and, and most significantly, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. We see that in all four Gospels. Now, underlying Jesus' ministry is the radical assumption that women have enormous value and purpose. And the clearest example is his mother Mary, who is called highly favored by God in Luke 1. Moreover, uh, Jesus used women as illustrations in his teaching, mentioning the Queen of the South, Matthew 12, the widow of Zarephath, Luke 4, the women at the second coming, Matthew 24, the woman in search of a lost coin, Luke 15. He held up the persistent widow as an example of prayerfulness in Luke 18, and the poor widow's might as an example of generosity in Luke 21. Jesus addressed women as daughters of Abraham, which placed them on the same spiritual plane as men in Luke 13 at a time where female learning was suspect at best, Jesus made a point to teach women on multiple occasions. We see that in Luke 10, Luke 23, and John 11. Jesus honored women, and he empowered them for ministry. But when it came to selecting those for positions of authority in the church, 
He chose only men. Our Lord had no trouble being radically pro-woman and unequivocally complementarian at the same time. And neither should we. Neither should we. And you need to pray about all of that. So I suggest you do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Teach us the surpassing value of being in Christ, Jesus our Lord. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to see how you want to order our roles and relationships in the church. Sometimes we still act as people who think upholding the roles that you have given us is too hard. Forgive us for not being courageous in following what your word teaches. Help us to know it, that it might make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And grant that learning this may result in changing our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.